Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Getting to the heart of every story, accurately, creatively, with integrity. That's the mission, the passion of Irene Taylor Brodsky and her company, Vermilion Films, which she founded in 2006. Irene is an Emmy and Peabody Award-winning, Oscar-nominated director, producer, writer, cinematographer. Her documentaries have been shown in theaters, at festivals, and on the small screen. Irene's first feature was a very personal one, a cinematic memoir about her deaf parents, among its many honors, the Audience Award at Sundance in 2007, and a Peabody. It was also nominated for Documentary of the Year by the Producers Guild. Her mom and dad are back on the big screen, as is her son Jonas and Irene's newest documentary feature, Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements, and we will get to that later. Irene's filmmaking career has taken her all over the world. Her short film, The Final Inch, about the worldwide effort to eradicate polio, was nominated for numerous awards. Add to her resume, Saving Pelican 895, which follows the life of a bird after the 2010 Gulf oil spill. There's HBO's Open Your Eyes, which tells the story of an aging couple who live in the Himalayas and who are determined to get their sight back. By the way, Irene's familiar with the Himalayas. She lived and worked as a Himalayan guide and author, and her book, Buddhas in Disguise, documents the lives of disabled people living there. Irene is a graduate of NYU and Columbia University of Journalism. Last but so not least, Irene was a producer for CBS Sunday Morning. Irene, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. This is exciting to be able to talk in depth. Absolutely, and we're going to go for it. But I have to begin with this. You were a producer for my all-time most favorite television program, CBS Sunday Morning, and just to put it out there, everyone who knows me knows not to call me on Sunday mornings from 9 to 1030 because I want to watch the show when it's on. I don't want to tape it. I want to watch it later. I just go nuts. Was that a terrific experience for you? It was. It was, uh, it was about three years of my career. I got to be there. And um, my team was really people who had been there forever. Some of them had been there since its inception with Charles Kuralt. And you really felt like you were working in a real institution of minds and of uh, story values, I would say. There was a certain quirkiness, you know, to the show, and there still is, you know, and I think that uh, it really taught me a lot. I was pretty young. I was uh, in my late 20s. So I really absorbed a lot. I didn't walk in there with a lot of preconceived ideas of what a producer role for a television magazine should be. And I walked in with really my sensibilities as a documentarian and as a journalist. And uh, I think I walked out of there with a better appreciation for sort of the intersection of culture and the arts mm-hmm. and certainly and certainly politics when I when I a couple times a year I would get assigned to the so-called cover story which usually was a you know a political story in the zeitgeist was that your first big job out of school you know it depends on what you call a big job uh, I uh, I left my undergraduate uh, at NYU and I moved to Nepal to, for five years so that was a big job because why? Well, I wanted to just start my career 
in photography. That's sort of my first love. And uh, so I, I went to Nepal to work on a coffee table book on deaf people mm-hmm. all through the Himalayas. Uh, so Nepal and Tibet mainly. And uh, that was a big job because I really just kind of jumped off into the abyss by myself. I didn't go there with anyone. I uh, was able to get a one-year educational visa and I volunteered at a deaf school. But really my main mission was to trek all through the back trails, all up into the Himalayas, onto the Tibetan Plateau, and meet and understand what it was like to live as a deaf person in the mountains of the tallest mountains in the world, the roof of the world, so to speak. So that was a big job for me. No kidding. (laughs) I wasn't following anyone. I was just literally blazing my own trail on these uh, on these mountain trails and looking for people and no one had ever walked through the mountains looking for deaf people because deaf people are unseen unheard in these parts of the world they're often the lonely cowherd or the girl that's sitting in the dark kitchen with cooking the meals and the tea so these are not people that they bring out into the public so that was that was a big job for me. Then I came back and I went to Columbia Journalism School in my late 20s. And my first job out of Columbia Journalism School was actually a job with the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. And at the time, I was working with Peter Gabriel and a program he had at the time called Witness. He had just started it. And they partnered with the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. And we would place small video cameras. This was the late 90s when small video cameras were really revolutionizing democracy, you could say. I Mm -hmm. mean, the the way we were able to put these cameras with witness into the hands of human rights activists and political watchdogs, if you will, in countries like Liberia, Northern Ireland, Guatemala, China. Uh, we We were smuggling in cameras to these people And they were documenting human rights abuses on the ground as they were happening. And my role, my role with that was to go through all the raw footage that they would smuggle out of the country. And I would try to effectively, I'd be a producer. I would be trying to digest the footage and think, how can we turn this into some kind of news story, whether that was a standalone news story, or if we started to get in footage from a number of countries where we saw patterns emerging. I would think about a story about several countries that had several different documentary style elements to it. So that was also, that was a very, um, that was a very eye-opening experience for me as a, as a human, because while I saw many things in Nepal and I saw many aspects to human nature in Nepal, I think that this was more a political awakening for me, a global political awakening. And uh, then after that, I spent two years working for a production company and I did television documentaries. And in two years, I made five television documentaries of about 45 minutes each. So that's where my learning curve just went into high gear, really. I just learned how to structure a story, really create a beginning, middle and end, then I did my first piece with HBO, and it was after I did my first piece with HBO that I landed the job at CBS. There's so much to tackle here, not the least of which is who you are as a person. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Did the attraction for Nepal and 
that in its deaf population, was that sparked by who your parents are? I do have deaf parents. And I will tell you one very key nugget I remember as an undergraduate journalism student at NYU is when a professor named Sonia Jaffe Robbins said to everyone in the room, look, you don't know much. You're all 19 years old. Welcome to college. So when you start writing, let me just give you some advice. Write what you You know. know. Mm -hmm. And, And I thought to myself as I graduated, you know, and I was sufficiently browbeaten down by all these weather journalists who'd seen it all, you know, and <laughs> they were letting us know, you don't know squat. Right, right. Patronizing you, know, you huh? Th- th- well, it was probably healthy. You know, we all had to show up, you know, big in our britches. You know, you think I'm ready to take on the world as a, as a young journalist. And they just really taught us tools, but they also humbled us, the teachers that I had. And I think that was an important step because When I did get ready to graduate, I thought, well, my gosh, what do I start with? Uh, Do I get an entry-level job at the Daily News? Do I, you know, go and try to work as a PA on a film set? Like, I really was highly intellectually stimulated by my own experience growing up with deaf parents. And I thought, what if I had grown up somewhere else with deaf parents? What that, what would that have been like if I grew up in India or I grew up in, right. in Kenya? And so I talked to my father and mother, who are both college professors, and they said, well, you know, Irene, maybe you could go work in a deaf school somewhere overseas just to kind of get a feel for what it's like to live as a deaf person in another part of the world. We know two teachers around the world. One's in Nairobi, Kenya, and the other one's in Kathmandu, Nepal. So lo and behold, I wrote a letter on my Apple Macintosh computer at the time <laughs> and sent a letter to the Nairobi head of school and the Kathmandu, Nepal head of school. And the guy from Kathmandu, Nepal wrote me back first. And that's where I went. It was as simple as that. It wasn't because I knew Nepal or I wanted to study Buddhism or I had some wanderlust for the Himalayas. I had a wanderlust to go anywhere, really anywhere. I just didn't want it to be the United States. So that was a little bit of just divine intervention because I took to uh, Nepal very intuitively. And I'm a big outdoors person. So for me, I didn't think twice about literally walking two weeks to get to one village where I'd heard there were 40% of the village was deaf you know, due to inbreeding. Right. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I would have no problem taking a hike for two weeks (laughs) because for me, just getting there would be the real adventure. Let's not lose sight of the fact that you had parents who encouraged you to do this. I mean, that's a big deal, isn't it? I guess so. At the time, I didn't think it was such a big deal because my parents always encouraged me to do anything and everything I was interested in. You know, interest in our family or curiosity was always what we held in very high esteem. And if you were curious about something, my parents always encouraged me to go pursue it. And, you know, my mother, uh, my mother came to visit me twice when I lived in Nepal. She stayed with me a couple months each time. It was really an extraordinary journey for her. I, when I lived in Nepal, after a year or so of living there, I learned to get around on a motorcycle, not a moped, but a motorcycle. And I drove a motorcycle around the Kathmandu Valley as my main form of transportation. And 
I had one accident on my motorcycle. God forbid anyone should have an accident on a motorcycle, but I did. And my mother happened to be on the back of my motorcycle. Oh, come on. And it was my mother who said to me two days after the motorcycle accident and my eye was starting to open up again because I'd, uh, I'd had a serious abrasion across my face. Um, when we, when the bike went down, she looked at me and she said, well, you better go get back on that bike or you're not going to ever get on it again. You know, here was my mom saying, you better get back on that horse. Mm. Otherwise you're just going to live afraid of that horse. If you know, they kick you off. Right. Right. And that's how my mom always taught me. She was like, just take it on, go on. And I think that for a woman who grew up with the extraordinary challenges of being deaf in the 1940s and being a teenager in the 1950s as a deaf, a deaf girl with a voice that sounded so different, many people couldn't even understand her. She really was an extraordinarily confident woman. She likes to joke that she was probably the only deaf person ever to be named the gossip editor of her high school yearbook. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Then let's move into, as I said, we're kind of jumping around, but what prompted you to make this documentary about your parents? I made a film in about 2005. I started filming in 2005. It eventually became Here and Now. And the reason I was catalyzed to make it was I got an email from my mother and father saying that they were deciding to get cochlear implants. They put it down at the end of an email after talking to me about very banal things. And then at the end of the email, they said, oh yeah, and by the way, we're going to all the medical appointments to get prepared for cochlear implants. Well, I was pretty shocked. I wasn't morally shocked. I wasn't politically shocked. You know, at that time in 2005, the cochlear implant debate was sort of around its peak. And that's not what shocked me. What shocked me was that they wanted to get cochlear implants because they're just very good at being deaf people. They were very comfortable in their own skin. Mm. So I was very intrigued by it. I always knew my dad was a technologically forward person. He was an inventor. He was one of the key inventors of the teletype and telecommunications devices for deaf people back in the 60s and 70s. Wow. And and I knew my mom, she was just she was just a force of nature. She is a force of nature and I knew that. So it didn't surprise me that they were going to get it, but I said to them, I would like to come home and stay with you for a while. I didn't have any kids. And it was easy for me to just stop my life in Portland, Oregon and go and live with them for a while. Which is where? They were in upstate New York in Rochester, which, by the way, happens to be America's uh, largest deaf capital. Really? It has the highest number of deaf people per capita of any place in uh, the country. Yeah. Rochester, New York. Why? There's a there's an educational institution there called the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. Everyone, everyone thinks of Gallaudet as the premier university in the United States, but Gallaudet's in D.C. NTID is in Rochester. And NTID, I would say, is the 
technological equivalent of Gallaudet. Gallaudet is more of a liberal arts program, and NTID is training engineers, people in the imaging sciences, and in the medical sciences. They're part of Rochester Institute of Technology. They're one of the colleges of RIT. Okay. So anyway, I grew up an RIT brat, right? I was on the campus growing up my whole life. I have an older brother and an older sister, both of whom can hear also. So my parents were living on Lake Ontario at the time, kind of in a wild area out in the country. And so I asked a friend who knew very little about filmmaking, but she was an outward bound guide. So maybe I don't need to say more. She, like me, was a real adventurer. And she said, yeah, I'll go to Rochester, New York for two months and uh, learn how to use this camera. (laughs) The two of us got started and we documented my parents getting their surgery, but more importantly, their first year with sound Wow! after being deaf for 65 years. Holy cow. Yeah. And I thought the film initially would be about their first year with sound and what that adventure would be like. And if it would disappoint them or if it would meet their expectations or what it would be like. But ultimately, you know, the film became a memoir from a daughter to her parents. And it was really a love story about two deaf people. And the film really uh, surprised me because I didn't realize how much my parents as two film characters, two, two human beings really would connect with people. And I think for all of the success the film got, it won the audience award at Sundance, it won a Peabody, it was nominated for numerous awards, it won numerous audience awards at festivals around the world actually. You know, in countries like, you know, in places like Abu Dhabi, in places in Europe. And I thought, gosh, it's fascinating to me that my two deaf parents who people who speak English can't even usually understand their voices. Right. That my parents had that much resonance with people around the world. And it really made me realize something about the universal quality of who we are. And when we are interesting people, when we have life experiences that really make us a singular character in a film or a singular individual like my father is, like my mother is, it really goes a long way and it crosses borders and it crosses sensibilities and certainly it crosses languages. That film was translated into numerous languages and then went on to HBO global platforms and played in scores of countries around the world. So it really, um, opened my eyes to the power of filmmaking on a global scale and that really the driving force needn't be a political issue, but a human one, a very, in this case, a very personal one. Yeah. What was that like for you also to be on the receiving end of all of these accolades? And what did it trigger in you for future films? Hmm. Well, that was my first feature-length film. Before then, I had done a short film for HBO. I had done television documentaries, and I'd certainly worked in television news. Um, What this really did for me was it gave me what I would call the, the narrative film bug. And by narrative, I don't mean fictional film uh, with actors and a script and a clear idea of what you're going to do when you set out to film. 
but really telling a narrative in a documentary format. And by that, I mean, not just something with a beginning, middle and end, but something with tone and color and a certain sensibility. And depth. And depth, of course, yes. And so I really enjoyed the ability to make something without commercial breaks. The television documentaries I'd made before that, you know, you were basically creating these nuggets of eight to 12 minutes, and then you'd have to go to a commercial break. And so you start, you would always shape your narrative according to that block of time, right? Mm. Well, this was more making a feature. The analogy would be more like an endurance race, but you were constantly creating and charting your course as you go. It's not like you're just running in a straight line from start to finish. It's not just that kind of endurance. It's you're running and then you're saying, well, I'm going to go over this hill and over that dale, even though it's going to take me six more minutes to tell it that way, it's going to allow me to really touch the hearts of my audience because I'm going to tell them this anecdote or to say, gosh, it sure is pretty over there, but I think I'm going to lose my audience if I, if I veer too far down that garden path. So I'm not going to go there. I mean, it's really as a creative endeavor, it's exhilarating to make a documentary. And there's always like a three or four month period where you cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. You do not know if you're ever going to finish the film or if you're ever going to make your themes that you're trying to tease tease out of your characters and you don't know if you're actually going to pull it all off and, and bring it all together. But I think when you start to round that bend, when you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, you really do have a sense of accomplishment. And it's very gratifying to be able to honor your characters in that way. Even if your characters are not always admirable. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting and I'm going to get on my soapbox. I, I've interviewed a lot of documentary filmmakers, and I've seen many, many documentaries. And I'm still so blown away by the power to educate and the power to expose. And even at my old age, I just never tire of whether it's a personal film and learning about somebody or that it's something political or whatever it might be. You can't diminish the potency of documentaries. I'm an addict. I love the form and I love making the form. I've had some opportunities to do commercial work and to do uh, fiction. And the commercial work has not been something I've found interesting. Um, But fiction does interest me. But I keep getting documentary ideas in the meantime. And so I keep just focusing on that. But I do think I'd have a lot to learn from working with a script Mm -hmm. or writing, you know, or writing with a script because I'm really engaged with creating narrative. And I also think that our brains, our human brain has evolved to understand ourselves through narrative. You know, if you think back to, you know, how radically Joseph Campbell taught us a few decades ago the power of myth, but what is it that was powerful about it? Was it that these were interesting stories with cliffhangers or was it that these classic myths actually gave us a framework to understand our own experience? Mm. And I think that's what the best documentaries do. They sort of function as modern day mythology and they give you, if they're, if they're made well, 
if they're made well, they really give you a, a, a framework to kind of organize your thoughts in and organize your own experience. And so in crafting memoir, you know, memoir is not the majority of the work I've done, but I've done two of them now. And I think that it has really required a tremendous amount of discipline for me to distill my thoughts and to remove myself sufficiently so that I'm not overbearing, but to be your guide. And, you know, I think that's really what I strive to be in both of my memoirs. I should tell you that both of my memoirs are narrated by the voice you're hearing right now. It's myself. That's a, a great segue. So let's talk about Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements. How is that born? So just as I finished here and now, I gave birth to a son. His name is Jonas. And I didn't know it, but Jonas was going deaf from the day he was born. And we found out at 18 months that he had only low frequency hearing. He had no high frequency hearing. So he really could not understand language in the same way we do, but he was hearing sound. So we didn't notice Jonas. Eventually we gave him a cochlear implant at four years old. We then gave him a second cochlear implant at eight years old. In the middle of all that, he took a real liking to piano and he started playing music when he was six. And when he was 11, he told me that he really wanted to learn this piece on the piano called the Moonlight Sonata. He knew about the Moonlight Sonata because his grandfather on his father's side, mm -hmm. who not, o not only can he hear, he's a pianist, he plays guitar, and he builds as his hobby Baroque musical instruments. And he oh, built, he's on his 16th harp. At the age of 82, he's now on his 16th harpsichord. Holy cow. Yeah. God. So he grew up, he grew up playing the Moonlight Sonata. And Jonas, his grandson, grew up hearing his grandfather play it all the time. So he wanted to learn the first movement of the Moonlight Sonata. And his teacher said, no, 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 Jonas, this is, this is way too advanced, advanced for you. Mm. And Jonas, Jonas wouldn't have it. He wouldn't have it. Apparently Jonas is his mother's son, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so he downloaded the music from the internet, printed out the first page and just put it on the piano and started, uh, you know, fiddling through it. And when I was sitting there with him, I try to sit with my kids when they practice. I was sitting there and I did get carried away looking into the history of this piece because, uh, you know, many of your listeners may recognize the first movement. I'm sure most people do. It's one of the most iconic and certainly a tremendously melancholic piece of music. Right. And I realized that Beethoven wrote this piece as he was going deaf. Right, right. And not only as he, I mean, he was going deaf for quite a number of years, you could, you could say. But this was a watershed year for him because he was emerging out of a suicidal depression that had sent him out into the countryside and no one really heard from him for a couple of years. He banished himself to the woods and he would take a walk every day and he would compose music in his head, but he was also struggling with physical pain from intense ringing in his ears. And he would wake up some days and he couldn't hear a thing. And other days he would wake up 
and his hearing would almost be back to where it was. So he was very scared. He was very anxious. And he was, of course, losing the one thing that he valued the most and the one thing that the public valued the most in him. So I started to go down this garden path of Beethoven's letters and reading his letters at that time. Fast forward a couple of weeks, I fly to New York City. I have a meeting with Sheila Nevins in her, in her home office. It's a pitch meeting. Mm-hmm. I'm there in New York to pitch Sheila six film ideas. Wow. But when, I walk, but when I walk in the door, the first thing she asked me is about my family. She knows my family. We made here and now together. Mm-hmm. It's something she always asked me. How is the family? And by the way, we had made then six more films together at that point. Wow. But she always asked me about my family. And I said, as I walked in the door, I said, oh, you wouldn't believe it. Jonas has just started learning this piece by Beethoven called The Moonlight Sonata. You know the one. Well, did you know that Beethoven wrote that piece as he was starting to go deaf? It's amazing. I can't believe it. Jonas didn't even realize Beethoven was deaf. He just loves this piece. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. So she, she apparently you know, locked it away in the back of her head. I proceed to take two hours to painfully pitch six stories to her, each of which she tells me one after the other. That's not right for us. That's not an HBO film. I like that, Irene, but I think we're, you know, six people have already pitched that to me. (laughs) I really had my tail between my legs. I really felt a bit defeated and I was putting on my coat to leave. And she said, I am so glad you flew to New York and I just cannot wait to get started on this new film we're going to make, Moonlight Sonata, about your son. <laughs> and what, was that jaw-dropping for you? I mean, did you fall on the floor? Well, I, I said, I guess we've got to make that one, don't we? <laughs> because there was a degree of trepidation. I had made a memoir before. Mm. I understood what it was like to have to write about my family. Invite you literally into my home. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, this was, this was not me going into my parents' home. This was me inviting my audience right. into my home and meeting my children mm-hmm. and meeting my family. And so that was, that was different. But I should tell you that as part of my long relationship with HBO, I had a development deal with, with HBO when we first found out that Jonas was going deaf. The same person who commissioned Moonlight Sonata, Sheila Nevins, she also commissioned a, a small development deal just to give me the time and resources to film Jonas when he was really young. He was going deaf. Every time we took him to the audiologist, he was losing more and more of his hearing. We were realizing that he was losing more and more of it. So it was a very dramatic time where my son was going deaf. We filmed, I edited some select together but ultimately, Sheila and I decided together that there wasn't really a film there that, that merited making. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I was relieved. I did not want to make a film when my son was a toddler. I did not want to make it, not because I can't work when I have a toddler. I've done that before. I had two kids after him. But I couldn't make a memoir. I wasn't ready to reflect. I was in the middle of living. Right, right. So the thing about him being 11 and learning the Moonlight Sonata this this piece, this first movement became this soundtrack for me as an artist and a mother to reflect upon 
what all this means. And by all of this, I don't simply mean having a deaf son. I mean, what is the deaf experience? How do I incorporate what I've observed living in Nepal, writing a book, making my first film in Nepal about deaf people and deaf children? What have I learned about witnessing my parents' lives growing up before the ADA, before caption television, before smartphones, before teletypes even, right. before, before children who are deaf were even allowed in the public schools? Oh, God, yeah. You know, so what have I learned from all of that? And now, what am I learning from Beethoven himself? What would it be like to go deaf in the late 1700s, early 1800s? What kind of tools would you have? How would people treat you, right? And so Moonlight Sonata has a subtitle, Deafness in Three Movements. And the three movements are the three centuries of my characters the 19th, 20th, and 21st century Uh um, of my three characters, Beethoven, my father, and Jonas. And so it's really a a reflection on also the experience of deafness. I can't imagine what that whole process was like, aside from the you know, the rawness of it, the intrusion of it. Was it difficult to make? Was it difficult to live through? You know, shooting the film had its moments. The hardest moments were with my father, which we can go into. But uh, I think the hardest has been bringing it to the world and showing the film publicly. I was not prepared for the intensity of emotions that would be in every theatrical screening I have presented. There is not a screening I have had publicly where someone in the room has not either come up to me afterward or stood up in front of an audience of several hundred people in tears. I am telling you that accurately. There is not one public event where that has not happened. So you really struck a nerve. Well, perhaps I did. My, my point was not to say that, but that it takes a lot out of me because I really, um, I really want to understand why people respond like that. I'm, I'm, I'm empathic by nature. I, I, I cultivate empathy in myself because I think it really helps my filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I think it, you know, I think hopefully it also makes me a better friend. It makes me a better person. It makes me a better parent. But I really, sometimes I come back from a screening and I wasn't crying. Other people were crying and I'm the one who's exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think, um, I think also I have there, I have these moments where I realize how much more people know about me than I know about them. And that's been a little unnerving. And, And then I'll tell you, honestly, you know, we've gotten wonderful and really meaningful response to this film. But, you know, the film gets reviewed. There's criticism out there. There are people who, uh, whose, whose careers and publications depend on criticism, right? Mm-hmm. And depend on meaningful criticism and critique of films that get made. And when I have read or been made aware of a, of a criticism, of a negative criticism, of this film, I really take it to heart. 
And that is something that's a little hard to admit to you, honestly, because I should be sealed. I should see this as my profession. But one of the things that I took a risk on is that the content and the characters I was offering up on the chopping block for criticism are the people who I love the most. No kidding. And so, and so when I, when I read a line of criticism, I think to myself, wow, what if my son reads that one day? Will he be sorry that he let his mom make a film about him? Mm -hmm. You know, those are things that are really hard to talk about. And just in the last week or so, I've started to say it out loud. You're the first person I'm saying it out loud <laughs> to publicly. But I think that, you know, this is, this goes with the territory. If you are going to be a nonfiction filmmaker dabbling in memoir, and I think at this point I can say I'm not a dabbler. I've made two feature length films, both of which are going to have significant distribution and here and now is going to be redistributed by HBO uh, later this year. So I really have to think about what it means when I put myself out there like that, you know, and I really, um, I don't regret it, mm -hmm. but I do understand that it comes with a price. So the best way I know how to pay that price is to openly talk about it now yeah, and to yeah. talk to my kids about it and talk to my parents about it. It's raw and honest. It has to be empowering. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to love, love fully. If you're going to do something, do it fully, you know? And so I just, I feel like y you can't be half-assed right. with a memoir. Um, one of the greatest gifts this film got was an early feature written by Kenneth Turan when we premiered at Sundance. He wrote a feature about making this film and really about me continuing the family narrative after here and now he was a real champion for my film here and now and wrote about it and also wrote about it this year in the LA times about moonlight Sonata. But one of the things I told him because he really probed me about maybe what it took to make this film that might be different than other films I had made. And it's not a word I would think or I would correlate typically with the way I treat my family. But what I told him is, I have to be ruthless with this film. <laughs> when I was making the film, when I was shooting the film, when I was editing scenes, I had to be ruthless. And by ruthless, I mean with myself and with the subject, not my characters. But it's like, if I am going to go here, if I'm going to take you down a path of a man losing his mind, which was my father, he started to develop dementia in the course of making Moonlight Sonata. If I'm going to take you down the path of a child suffering through the, lo the loss of his hearing, I have to tell it all to you. Mm -hmm. I have to include those little iPhone movies that I had on my phone where I had this pained compulsion to pull out my camera and film him post-op. What was I thinking? Right. I'm not sure what I was thinking, but I wanted to remember this moment. And sure enough, 11 years later, I interviewed him. This didn't make it into the film, but I interviewed him and I said, 
do you remember losing your hearing? He said, I don't remember. And I don't feel sad, mom. I don't feel sad that I lost my hearing because I don't remember it hurting. I don't remember feeling sad about it. I don't remember hearing anything, you know, and that was really helpful for me because when he was born, I believed he was hearing because he was hearing something. He could hear a shoe drop. Mm -hmm. He could hear a train go by. He could hear the, he could hear the vowels of my words. He couldn't hear the consonants. So we had this differing POV, right? Mm -hmm. He had POV and I had another POV. And I think as a filmmaker, I was always very interested in documenting some of these moments that felt particularly, uh, uh, what do I want to say? Distasteful, if you will, Mm -hmm. to film. You know, my father, when we were filming the Moonlight Sonata, he came over one day and said to me at 9 p.m. at night, he came over and said, Irene, I have something really serious I need to talk to you about. Well, it just so happened. I literally had an interview seat set up with lights. Everything was color perfect. Everything was temperature perfect. The exposure was just right. I had a lavalier microphone sitting in a seat. I happened to be interviewing my child earlier that evening as a, as a play, as a play movie we were doing. Mm -hmm. And so I said to my father, if we're going to have this conversation, whatever it is you want to talk about, would you sit in this chair and let me record it? And you know what he said to me? He said, I don't know, Irene, this is private. (laughs) My father has never told me I couldn't film anything. My father is a filmmaker himself. He's made, he's made 10 films of his children. He put the camera in our face all the time when we were kids. And when we made here and now, there was not a time he ever told me to turn the camera off. Okay. And he said, I don't know, Irene, this is private. And I have to tell you what I did. I talked him into it. And I said to him, dad, you understand we don't have to use this, but I would like to try. I've got it set up. All you have to do is let me put on the microphone and we can start. And he said, okay we can do it. And that was nothing less than a gift. Mm. That was a gift to me because he knows me and he knows that I'm ruthless in that if I'm going to do this, do it all. You don't have to include it, but at least you've got it there. And I also had the information. So even if I didn't end up using the information, it would be, it would be news that I had and that I had documented. Well, we did use it in the film, and it's one of the more, it's a very sad moment for me. If I do cry in the film, sometimes it's during that scene, because I remember the gift he gave me, letting me film it. But I think that the result is that people get to watch a man acknowledging that his own mind, his own life is eluding him. Mm. He's still articulate enough. He's still lucid enough to say, I'm here. I am a man. I have my life. I have my brain. I remember who I am. I know what I've accomplished in my life. I know my children. I know what I'm proud of. And yet, Irene, I can't balance my checkbook. Irene, I can't remember my passwords. Irene, 
something is wrong with me. And the way he said it, only a camera could have captured. A, a moving picture camera, a motion picture camera, because a still photograph would have been poignant, but not as poignant as a motion picture. And so I was very, very lucky. And, and, and someday I might even go back to that interview, which probably lasted 15 minutes. And in the film, we show you about four minutes of it. It was really a remarkable moment. In your telling this, I haven't taken a breath. What a powerful part of this of your story. I mean, it's I mean, I I, I didn't inhale. I yeah, I usually am not at a loss for words. I am I, you you're amazing, Irene, and your honesty and your openness and your and your commitment and your willingness to go out there and and try and do. You should be cloned. <laughs> oh gosh. I wish I could be cloned just so that I could do my work all the time and then also have my personal life all the time and be with my kids and my friends and yeah, that's the only Well, I, I realize I could be, you know, gushing and deifying you, but, you know, to call you um, St. Irene Taylor Brodsky is not a stretch, by any stretch. We're running out of time, and I could talk to you for frickin' ever, but I want to ask, what's on the burner for you now? Well, I am uh, working with the two new heads of HBO Documentary Films, Lisa Heller and Nancy Abraham, who have been steadfast partners through the making and editing of Moonlight Sonata. Um, and I am working with them on a new film that I can't really talk about at this stage uh, because it is uh, very nebulous. It's very nebulous, but I just want to say it is my most challenging film yet. What a tease, um, woman. What a tease. <laughs> <laughs> this from somebody who's, uh, you know, hiked the Himalayas. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that that would be easy. But but for this film, I you know I may need to hike the Himalayas to get some good footage. So <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll see. We'll we'll see. But as far as I know, it's not a personal film. But they, they are such good executives that they've given me a very long leash, and they've encouraged me to think about the film in a number of different formats, different lengths. You know, in the documentary field today. It's, it's very exciting. A, a, a quote documentary can be a three-parter. It can be a standalone film. It can be a nine-minute short film. Mm. You know, it's, it can be all these things, and HBO would be a wonderful platform for any of those things I just mentioned. So um, one of the things I'm doing is just trying to get a feel for what the film smells like, tastes like, and looks like. I know that sounds very vague, but in a way, I'm developing my instincts around the subject matter first. And then I'm just sort of waiting for my story to unfold, meet me mm -hmm. to, to unfold or to show up in a way. Um, because I'm, I don't have the, I don't have the narrative nugget yet, but I do have the subject matter and I do, and I do have a strong sense of how I want the film to taste and feel. So speaking of show up, how about we make this deal that you'll show up <laughs> when this film is completed and you'll come back and we'll talk more because I could talk to you for forever. Oh, that is really, 
that's kind. I, I don't have an opportunity to talk so in depth with people like this, and I appreciate it very much. Well, it was very easy, Irene, really, just so. Wow. Uh, I love what I do. I can't thank you enough for your honesty, your openness, your inspiration. Forgive the gushing, but it's really how I feel. Oh, thank you so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.